Acts 19, starting at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. In 1976, the American economist Walter Block released this book called Defending the Undefendable. And his aim was to defend the moral and economic status of those characters that society deems beyond the pale. Uh, So let me read you some of my favorite chapters. Uh, Chapter 5, Defending the Drug Addict. Chapter 6, Defending the Blackmailer. Chapter 7, Defending the Slanderer. Chapter 10, Defending the Person Who Yells Fire in a Crowded Theater. Chapter 12, Defending the Ticket Scalper. 
And my personal favorite, chapter 29, Defending the Fat Capitalist Pig. I have to say, it's an interesting read. I'm not quite sure how persuaded I am. But it did make me wonder, if you were writing this book today, would you want to have a chapter defending the Christian? Uh, And if you did, what would it say? Uh, Is Christianity defending the undefendable? Because it can certainly feel like that sometimes, can't it? I remember a few years ago when Tim Farron was forced to resign as leader of the Liberal Democrats because, in his own words, to be a political leader and to live as a committed Christian, to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching, has felt impossible for me. Earlier this year, we saw Kate Forbes being hounded during the Scottish leadership election for her faithfulness to Jesus's teaching. I remember at the height of the controversy, reading this column by James Marriott in the Times. He wrote this, every appearance of Christianity in the news has the effect of making the faith seem backward, rustic and bigoted. Such socially conservative views are not the ones associated with the elite. They are the views connected to the class of people commonly disparaged as gammons. And no man aspires to gammonhood. Today, as the implosion of Forbes's political career demonstrates, Christianity is becoming an impediment to a person's movement in the upper reaches of society. Anybody attempting to expound traditional Christian teachings on sexual morality, hell or sin on the premises of a modern law firm or management consultancy will find themselves standing outside the door of an HR department in short order. Now, I don't know if that is reflective of your experience. Maybe the HR department in your office are really nice, lovely people, uh, rather than sitting around plotting the downfall of the Christian world. I don't know. But hopefully it gives you some kind of an idea of the kind of culture that we live in. One where defending Christianity can often feel like defending the undefendable. And that does make it harder to live as a Christian, doesn't it? It makes it harder to stand firm for Jesus, to be secure and settled and established in your faith. And it makes it harder to speak up for Jesus, to talk to others about him when society subtly and constantly chips away at your confidence in what you believe. And maybe that's one of the reasons that you find it hard to share the gospel with others. I know it is for me. Or maybe you're here this evening and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. And one of the things that holds you back from Christianity is that fear that to become a Christian would make you an undefendable Someone whose beliefs society deems beyond the pale. You would need to have confidence that Christian teaching really is defendable before you could put your trust in it. Well, that is exactly why God has given us this section of the book of Acts. The whole of Luke and Acts was written to strengthen our confidence in the gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4, which should be on your handout, 
Luke tells us that he has written so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And up until now, he's mainly been giving us certainty that the gospel will triumph and prevail. Remember that key verse from our passage last week, Acts 19 verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But our passage this evening begins a new section where Luke aims to give us a different kind of certainty. Certainty in the public credibility of the gospel. And he does it by showing us Paul's public defense of his ministry. We're given a preview of the section ahead in verse 21 of our passage where Luke says, if you look down with me, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Over the course of the next nine chapters, we will follow Paul through Macedonia and Achaia up to Jerusalem and then eventually on to Rome. And as we do, we will see him publicly defending his ministry before a litany of different public officials, before the council of elders in Jerusalem, before two Roman governors and a king in Caesarea, all on the way to Rome to give testimony before Caesar himself. And Luke's aim by showing us Paul's public defense is that we might have confidence in the credibility of the gospel. That it stands up to opposition in the public square. That it can take the heat and be defended on the airwaves or in the office, before the law court or around the dinner table. It's as if he were writing the chapter on the Christian in defending the undefendable. And he begins with this passage this evening, and it's account of the riot in Ephesus because it shows us what the opposition is really like. See, if the opposition to Christianity were mostly principled and articulate and legally sound, then defending Christianity could be hard. But as it is, this riot shows shows us that often it's the opposite. Far from being principled, it's often stirred up by vested interests. Far from being articulate, it's often swept away by mob mentality and mass hysteria. Far from being legally sound, it's often sent packing by the first person to pay attention to due process. And so we can have confidence that the gospel can be defended. The story itself splits neatly into three parts, which I've tried to put in an outline on your handout. So it begins and ends with these two speeches, both of which contain a warning about a possible danger but which have the opposite effect on the crowd. Uh, At the beginning of the passage, in verses 23 to 27, 
a silversmith called Demetrius encourages his colleagues to riot by warning them of the danger of losing their business. He says in verse 27, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And then at the end of the passage, the town clerk makes another speech, this time trying to calm the crowd down by telling them they're in danger of getting arrested. He says in verse 40, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And then in the middle of the passage, in verses 28 to 34, Luke describes the confusion of the crowd and he bookends this paragraph with their enraged and confused shouting. So in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And again in verse 34, When they recognized he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So there's the structure of the passage. And what it's meant to show us is, well, three things. Three things about the opposition that Christianity often faces in the public square, but which really give us confidence that Christianity can be defended against it. First, that it's often stirred up by vested interests. Second, that it's often swept away by mass hysteria. And then third, that it's often sent packing by attention to due process. First, it's stirred up by vested interests. Let's pick up the story again at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the Roman world, the capital of Asia, and home to the great temple of Artemis. Uh, This temple was absolutely vast in size, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, larger than any other building west of the pyramids, a wonder of the ancient world. And every year, thousands of people would flock to worship there. And so events in Ephesus were public knowledge. Any news of trouble there would have spread like wildfire through the ancient world. And perhaps over the years, the rumor had grown up that those pesky Christians had started this riot. That they were nothing but a bunch of troublemakers for daring to call Artemis a fake. And of course, on one level, they'd be right, wouldn't they? 
Uh, Paul has been teaching in the words of verse 27 that gods made with hands are not gods. But Luke wants us to see that the riot itself had a far more commercial motive. See, the size of the Artemis fan base made religion in Ephesus not just a matter of belief, but much more importantly, a matter of business. The Temple of Artemis was the most important financial institution in Asia, a sort of ancient day Bank of England where millions of pounds were stored in investments. And the GDP that was brought in by pilgrims who came there to worship was the foundation of the Ephesian economy. And that, says Luke, was the real reason for this rioting. It all starts in verse 24, when a man called Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, hears about the bonfire in verse 19, when the thousands of books were burned in response to Paul's preaching, separating their connection from the magic arts and from idolatry. And Demetrius can see the writing on the wall. He knows the problem for his profit line that this is going to cause if it goes any further. And so combining the business instincts of Lord Sugar and the picket line persuasion of Mick Lynch or Jeremy Corbyn, he gathers his colleagues together and he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, it is a masterpiece of populist rabble-rousing, isn't it? Donald Trump would do well to study this speech The subtle overstatement stirring the people into a frenzy. The cultural alarmism preying on their fears of decline. But behind all the rhetoric, the true motive is clear. Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. As one commentator says, religious piety becomes but a thin cloak for personal economic interests. Uh, Or in the rather punchier strapline from Bill Clinton's election campaign in the 90s, it's the economy, stupid. And the same has been true throughout history. Wherever the gospel has gone, it's been opposed. But often not because of any fault with Christianity, simply because it threatens vested interests. Every day I I cycle down the Mile End Road past a statue of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Less well known is the fact that Booth was opposed by a group who called themselves the Skeleton Army, who used to follow him round at all of his rallies, making an absolute racket so that nobody could hear what he was saying. And unsurprisingly, their membership consisted almost entirely of pub landlords and brewers, the very people whose pockets were being hit hardest as the message that he preached freed people 
from the grip of alcoholism. You can imagine something similar happening today, can't you? Imagine there were a revival of Christianity in the city and insurance brokers and bankers and lawyers started en masse to use their evenings and weekends to serve the cause of the Lord Jesus instead of slaving away night and day to serve their companies. You can imagine the tolerance of the office Christian meeting just starting to wane on the executive board. Perhaps there'd be a crackdown on religious activities at work. But it wouldn't be down to any fault with the gospel. It's the economy, stupid. People oppose the gospel when they feel it in their wallets. The reason that politicians and businesses tweet their support for every religious festival under the sun isn't because the guy who does social media for Pret has really thought about it and concluded that there are many religions that all lead to the same truth. It's because it's good for business to appeal to people's idolatry. So yes, the gospel will be opposed. And yes, that will often make it harder to be a Christian. But it's not because there's any fault with Christianity. It's just because the gospel threatens vested interests. Appealing to people's idolatry is effective. So effective, in fact, that those who listen to it are, secondly, often swept away by mass hysteria. Look down again at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The theatre in Ephesus sat almost 20,000 people. So this is not just a little gathering of disgruntled shopkeepers singing Kumbaya. Picture instead the crowd on match day in London Stadium. Except they're not screaming for their favourite players. They're shouting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I did think about trying to get us all to shout it in unison this evening. And then I thought... I quite like my job, and uh, not quite sure it's worth it. But make no mistake, this would have been seriously noisy. 20,000 people. You, you could have heard it for miles around. And for those caught up in it, for Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, I imagine it would have been pretty terrifying. And yet there is just a hint of the farce here, isn't there? I think we're meant to smirk as we read this. I particularly like verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, 
for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. You can imagine two people standing next to each other in the crowd, and one of them is like, yes, go Artemis, Artemis for the, for the win. And the other one's like, wait, Dave, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know, I followed you. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet, isn't that what a lot of our public discourse is like these days? Shouting slogans at each other in the comments on Facebook until you can't really even remember why you're arguing. Janice Turner, another columnist for the Times, was reflecting on this a few weeks ago. She wrote, It seems our public discourse has been shoved into a centrifuge so powerful it can fling every moderate opinion to the outermost extremes. As it whips round ever faster, huge effort is required to cling to the rational, pragmatic middle. But why bother trying when there are huge rewards for just letting go? In our social media age, even a non-Christian newspaper columnist can see that our public discourse often, often descends into an online shouting match between two entrenched positions until people can't even remember why they're supposed to be there. And isn't much hostility towards Christianity like that too. I remember talking to my friends when I was at school and then being so convinced that they didn't like the Bible and then you'd ask them a few questions about the Bible, and it turned out they'd never actually read it and didn't know the first thing about it. They didn't know why they didn't like Christianity. They just sort of had a vague idea that they knew they shouldn't. And like everyone else, they were jumping on the cultural bandwagon without really thinking about things. Some crying out one thing, some another. Most of them not sure why they were even there. When I said this to the 6pm staff on Tuesday, one person said, oh yeah, that's exactly what we get when we do walk-up evangelism. You meet people on the street who are so convinced they don't want to be a Christian. And then you ask them a few questions and they, you realise they don't actually really know what a Christian is or what they believe. Behind all that opposition, all that hostility... There's nothing more than a, a lemming-like acquiescence to the cultural idolatry of the age, bursting out in sloganeering, propped up by a mob mentality. And then there's the cancel culture. Of course, we've all heard the stories of politicians and teachers and CEUs getting cancelled for their Christian beliefs. Isn't it helpful to see that it's been going on ever since Paul's day, though? Not a modern phenomenon in any sense. In verse 30, when Paul wants to go into the crowd to defend himself, he has to be stopped by his disciples and friends, the Asiarchs, because they know that the crowd will kill him if he gets there. And then in verse 33, when the Jews put forward Alexander to make a defense again, he gets no platform, deplatformed by the crowd and shouted down so that he can't defend himself. Doesn't it give you confidence in Christianity to see that its opponents behave like this? If they were organized and thought through and considered and reasonable, 
then it would be hard to defend the gospel against them. But as it is, a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, they're the opposite. Motivated by a mob mentality and relying on cancel culture to silence those they disagree with. The person who helps with walk-up that I spoke to went on to say, the more that I talk to people on the streets about Christianity, the more confident I am that Christianity is right. Because that's when you realize that most of our culture's opposition to Jesus is paper thin. They don't really even know why they oppose it. And of course, because they're like that, you often find that the law defends the Christian position. Which brings us to our last point. The gospel's opponents are often sent packing by due process. Let's pick up the story for the last time in verse 35. And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. It's easy to think that in such a hostile culture as ours, if you speak for Jesus, no one will come to your defense. But isn't it interesting in this passage how the powers that be consistently defend Paul. So first, in verse 29, the Asiarchs, who are sort of the top brass in Ephesus, we're told that they're his friends, and they protect him from going to the theater. And now, in verses 35 to 41, we get this speech from the town clerk, who was the city's top public official. And he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. He says in verse 35, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? He's not a Christian, but he knows the law. And he knows the rioters don't have a leg to stand on. As he says in verse 37, they have no legal case. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, And even if they did have a case, then an unauthorized riot would hardly be the appropriate setting in which it should be tried. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So yes, there will be opposition to the gospel, and yes, it will be noisy and loud, but legally, it often won't have a leg to stand on. 
In fact, there may even be senior non-Christian people at your job or your university who will be willing to back you up on that point. I remember when I was a student in Oxford, one of the colleges tried to ban their college CU from their freshers' fair. And then there was a massive outcry from the rest of the university, both Christians and non-Christians, saying, we live in a free country. And you can't just stop people from sharing their beliefs. And so the CU was eventually allowed to be at the Freshers' Fair. And the college that had tried to ban them had to promise that they would be at all future events. I know it's not true everywhere, but wonderfully in the UK, we live in a free country. And you can't just silence the people you disagree with. So when you face that kind of opposition as a Christian, don't be surprised if there are senior non-Christians who come to your defense. Don't be afraid to point out that they have no legal leg to stand on. Another friend of mine recently had a girl in their secondary school reported as a safeguarding concern for saying that she thought that men and women were different, a view that the Bible affirms. And on the same day that she was reported, the Prime Minister got up and said almost exactly the same thing at the Conservative Party conference. So yes, there will be opposition. And yes, it will be noisy and loud. But legally, it often won't have a leg to stand on. And so we can have confidence that the gospel, that Christianity, can be defended. Going back then to defending the undefendable. What, what would Luke have included if he'd written a chapter on the Christian? Certainly there's lots more positively that we could say, and we'll see that as the section goes on. But here he starts by exposing the opposition for what often they're really like. They might be loud and noisy and culturally dominant, But look at their motives. Look at their character. Look at their legal position. Far from being principled, they're they're often stirred up by vested interests. Far from being articulate, they're often swept away by mob mentality. Far from being legally sound, they're often sent packing by due process. So don't be intimidated by them but have confidence to stand firm for the Lord Jesus and keep speaking up for him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for the gospel and that we can have confidence to stand firm in it and to speak up for it. And we pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.